Welcome back to Partners in Crime. This is our final episode of the semester. I'm so glad you're joining us. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kaylee. And this is Partners in Crime. <laughs> yeah! Whoa! Crowd goes wild! <laughs> and this week we are both talking about pretty long cases, pretty semi-famous cases, and I'm going to be talking about the BTK killer, which is also known as Dennis Rader. And he is an American serial killer who goes by the common nickname BTK, which he gave himself. It stands for Blind, Torture, and Kill. He killed 10 people between 1974 and 1991. But before we get into the murders, I want to dive into who he was as a person and his past can life. Talk, can you just talk about the fact that he gave himself the nickname? I know. How lame it! You can't give yourself a nickname. That's not how it works. The news is supposed to do that. The right. Um, but Dennis Rader was born on March 9th, 1945 in Pittsburgh, but he grew up in Wichita, Kansas. And growing up, he was paid very little attention to by his parents. Um, it was something he described as... It was something that he described as feeling ignored by his mother, which he resented her a lot for. And from a young age, he had sadistic sexual fantasies about torturing people, um, specifically women. And he would torture... What? All sympathy out the window now. Yeah, for sure. Um, He would torture torture and kill small animals growing up. And he would spy on his female neighbors dressed in women's clothing himself. And he would steal underwear from his female neighbors. And... um, he would masturbate with ropes and bindings around, like, while watching the women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's disgusting. It is disgusting. Just picturing that? Terrifying. Nightmare-inducing. Yes. And he would take pictures of himself in the women's clothing and like a mask that's like a female mask is what it was described as. And he would be tied down and he would just take pictures of himself like that. Um, And he was pretending to be one of his victims as a part of like a sexual fantasy that he had. So that's why that he did that. And um, regardless of all of this, he kept this extremely well hidden from everyone, his wife, his children included. Um, He was... Hmm? He had a family. He was a family man and he was doing this. Yeah. A wife and two kids. He was well liked by the community, actually. He was a local church. He was a member of the local church and he was a Boy Scout leader. It's always the Boy Scout leaders. That's true. And the church um, leaders, I feel like. Some, maybe. The overlap there is really where it lies. Mm hmm. Um, but according to his kids and just like some accounts that his wife had said that the life at home was perfectly normal. Um, so he was pretty much living a double life. Like they did not know anything about this until he got arrested pretty much. Um, but now that we know the little backstory, let's get into the cases. Um, on January 15th, 1974, four members of the Oterio family were murdered in Wichita. They were Joseph Oterio, Julie Oterio, um, Joseph Oterio Jr., and then Josephine Oterio. Uh, They were discovered by the family's three older kids who weren't home at the time. um, And he tied them up as well. Um, The youngest one was nine years old. And I 
think I read that he killed him last. Um, but between the spring of 1974 and the winter of 1977, he killed three more women named Catherine, Catherine Bright, Nancy Fox, Shirley Van Relford. And after these murders, he sent a letter to the TV station KAKE in Wichita, claiming to be responsible for the Oterrier murders and the murders of those three women. This is where he called himself the BTK killer. He demanded media attention, and um, he basically just described the murders in extreme details. And I cannot find the letters, though, which is really annoying because I wanted to see them. Did you, you tried looking for them, though? Yeah, I'm, I'm, surprised. I'm surprised it's not online. I know, it's not. Like, the only letters that are online are the ones he sent his daughter when he was in jail. These are jail letters. Um, I thought I wrote down his names. I didn't. Let me see if I can find it again, because I want to see it, because I thought they were funny. Oh, his th he gave him three options. BTK Strangler, BTK Killer. How stupid, though, is BTK Killer? I know. Your kill killer. The Wichita Strangler, the Wichita Hangman. Asphyxiator. Oh, okay. Asphyxiator. <laughs> like a superhero? <laughs> hey, oh my god, that's what he was going for. Killing people out of out of mercy. Ari, what's your rating of him? <laughs> I'd give him maybe a solid eight because if he wasn't a killer i feel like he'd be like my drunk uncle <laughs> you're the first part love what are you talking about a solid eight i thought you were gonna pull out a four <laughs> <She's on. laughs> oh oh she inverted the scale <laughs> oh okay okay that's acceptable that's better than <laughs> but he called himself BTK Killer in the letter. He demanded media attention. In the letter, there was a poem titled, Oh, Death to Nancy, where he claimed to be driven by a supernatural element to kill the people and that he was motivated by Jack the Ripper, Son of Sam, and the Hillside Strangler. Uh, this wasn't the end of his murder spree. He attempted to kill 63-year-old Anna Williams in 1979 but she avoided it after she arrived home later than he had expected her to be home. He sat and waited at her house for hours, but she didn't come home, so he left, and he became obsessed with her. He was absolutely livid, is what he said in quotes, um, that she didn't come home, and he never killed her, but I think he, like, stalked her a little bit, um, and in 1985, he killed Marine Hedge and took her body to the church that he was president of the church council of. He photographed her body in different bondage positions in the church, and then he dumped her into a ditch. Um, his final victim was Dorless E. Davis in 1991, and there was, like, no information about this person, um, but this was... The last one and then in 2004 it was considered a cold case until he sent 11 letters to local media stations claiming that he was going to kill again describing all the murders that happened before um and it just ended up in his arrest on february 25th 2005 and that was the end of his murder sprees um he's still alive he's still in jail i think he's on death row let me double check that 
No, he's just life in prison. Um, but yeah, I watched his confession a little bit. It was a 40-minute video, so I didn't watch the whole thing. But he's like complete. It's like he's just talking to somebody, like describing these murders and describing what he did. It's just like he's like explaining detached. something. Huh? Like detached. Yeah, it was very, it's creepy, but it's interesting to me. But yeah, that's BTK Killer. BTK Killer. BTK Find Killer. Kill killer. I heard that he was like really angry though when um, people like stopped caring about it. So. Yeah, and he sent letters in like years later because of that. And that's what got him arrested because nobody knew like who it was. I really enjoyed it, Kaylee. You did a great job. Thank you. Now let's hear yours, Caroline. Oh my god. Okay, I'm gonna be talking about the Black Dahlia. <laughs> no, but for real. <laughs> let's get into this. No, I'm sorry. That's so bad. We can't use that. Um, that was yeah, perfect. I loved it. Um, so, let's just dive right in. The Black Dahlia. On January 15th, 1947, mutilated body of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short was found cut in half at the waist and drained of all blood in a vacant vacant lot in Los Angeles. That is a good opening. Like, that is CSI material right there. Yes. Beautiful. Um, the body was discovered by Betty Bersinger and her daughter walking past on their way to buy some shoes. Um, at first glance, the woman thought the figure was a store mannequin because it was in two different pieces, but she realized it was a body and phoned the police at a near house. So um, Elizabeth's body was found completely severed at the waist, dra drained of all blood. Her face had been cut from the corners of her mouth to her ears, giving her a Glasgow smile. And uh, she had several cuts on her thighs and breast and portions of her flesh, flesh had been actually like cut away, including a singular nipple which one nipple was cut off one nipple that stuck with me yeah that's kind of weird um her intestines had been quote neatly tucked under her buttocks um and the lower half of her body was a foot away from the upper portion um and her body was also like poised a certain way so her hands were over her head and elbows bent at right angles, and then her legs were spread apart, um, knees straight. But before we continue, let's actually give the victim an identity. Her name is Elizabeth Short, but she liked to go by Betty. Her father, Cleo Short, built miniature golf courses until 1929. That's when the stock market crashed, um, and it left the Short family short for cash. Um, in 1930, thank you, Kaylee, in 1930, her father's car was later found abandoned on a bridge, leaving people to assume he had committed suicide. But then in 1942, her father contacted her mother to apologize and explain that he just started a new life in California, which... That's <laughs> how crazy! You, 12 years go by and you're like, hey, I want to apologize. <laughs> and maybe you can come out here with me. No. Um, but no. Petty was the only one of her family to accept her father's apology, and she moved out to California uh, to be with him. But arguments broke out between the two quite frequently, and so she actually moved out by January 1943, so just a few months there. Um, and then from that point on, she moved around a lot. Like, I could not find 
like a steady timeline researching this case like Kaylee this was so freaking difficult because I had like read on the Wikipedia page and then I found this YouTube video and it was like if you've been researching about the Black Dahlia you've been lied to and I was like what do you <laughs> what do you mean and it said a lot of the stuff online is not true and it's because it's from newspapers during the time that were just like lying like tabloids and now people think it's a fact so I I had a really hard time finding stuff that was like truthful. So from 1943 to um, 1947, I don't really know what, what she was doing. But, and then this section of the paper I called Moida time. So <laughs> on January 9th, uh, 1947, Betty was returned home by, from a trip to San Diego with Robert Red Manley who was a 25-year-old married salesman that Betty had been apparently dating. Um, Manley stated that he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, and according to Manley, Betty had plans to meet with her sister, who was visiting from Boston that afternoon. The Biltmore staff recalled seeing Betty using the telephone, and then later that day, she was also seen at this uh, lounge that was, like, right down the street from the hotel. But after that, she goes missing. There's nothing known about her whereabouts until January 15th, where Betty finds her on the street. Um, so after identifying the body, it actually was not the police who identified the next of kin. It was reporters from the LA Examiner, and they called her mother, pretended to be judges from a beauty pageant, and they said that Betty had won the contest, and they just needed, like, address and things like that. Um, for whatever reason, I don't understand how her mother, like, fell for this. And, like, I don't know. But I, I, I will not blame her or give her any, any crap. Because at the end of getting all this information, the reporters were like, oh, actually, your daughter has been murdered. And then, like, hung up the phone. What? And that's how she find out. <laughs> that's terrible. No. Wait, what um, year is this again? 47. Okay. I mean, I feel like that, for that time, I feel like that's probably you. Like, what? I, I can imagine the little, like, rat, like, reporters being like, <laughs> Who killed your daughter? <laughs> Hello, is this uh, Mrs. Short? Yeah. No, why am I British all of a sudden? Okay, no. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> um. So, yeah, no, that's how she had to find out, and that... And then later, um, I read that they attempted to make it up to her, and they flew her out to L.A., but then, because they were like, we'll fly you out here because the police want to see you, but we'll pay for your ticket to make it up to you. And she was like, okay, bet. And so they fly, out, they fly her out there, and they won't let her go anywhere near the police. They just want more information for their stories. I don't know. Just reporters in this time were, like, terrible people. <laughs> So snaky. Yes. Um, um, her cause of death was stated to be hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face and the shock of the blows to the head and face as well. Um, but the part that's like most telling is the separation of her torso. Um, it was completed by a surgical procedure that was taught in the 1930s. Um, and the lower half of her body had been removed by cutting the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. 
and the coroner noted that there was very little bruising along the incision line, which first off, this means that it was post-mortem, but then also um, it was done in such a way that they could tell that it must have been someone who had a medical history and like was trained as like a doctor to do this. And that's like really what um, helped them rule out people for the suspects. And as for the suspects, I have five people to talk about. Okay. In actuality, there were like 60 at people at least who called. And they're like, hey, I did it. And I don't, there were so many people who were also like calling and saying, I know who did it. It was my father and like offering up like brothers and uncles. And like, it was just really, I don't know, really strange. Like the phenomenon that was taking people over in the 1950s. Um, but the first one that I want to get into, I, this is my personal favorite conspiracy or like theory. Um, his name is Walter Bailey and he was never a suspect in the crime, but I think he's actually like really worth talk or talking about. So he was an LA surgeon who lived one block south of the vacant lot in which her body was found. Um, that is until he left his wife in October 1946. And I will remind you that the body was found in January 1947. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, his daughter was a friend of Betty's sister. So there's a connection. And then when Bailey died in January 1948, his autopsy showed that he was suffering from a degenerative brain disease um, that was known to produce violent behavior in otherwise passive individuals. Also, um, before I go any further, I have to introduce this other guy called Barry Harnish, who he was a, a writer or like a wannabe writer in like the late 90s, I believe. And he, he got a job offer to write about the Black Dahlia for this newspaper and he took it and he's become like obsessed now with the case and he's, okay, so we are now introduced to Larry Harnish. So, um, he was talking to Bailey's former receptionist, and he discovered that Bailey and his mistress would at dinner time watch movies of surgeries and autopsies, which I just thought was a, a funny little hobby. I'll call it that. Um, but Bailey, at seven, 67 years old, at the time of the murder, had no history of violence or criminal activity of any kind. And he was not known to have met Betty, even though his daughter was a friend of her sister. But in devising his theory, Harnish uh, consulted retired FBI profiler who advised that the popular location of the dump site was significant since the killer had the ability to transport it anywhere he wanted to. But he chose it a block away from where Bailey's estranged wife was. Um, and then Douglas also advised that the, I'm sorry, I should say, the FBI profiler also advised the facial lacerations indicated personal anger towards the victim. And so a little tidbit about Betty, she would often tell men that she had a son who died tragically, um, which was just full, full baloney. But Bailey did in fact have a son who was struck by a car and killed at age 11. The deceased child's birthday was January 13th and bodies, <laughs> Betty's body was found on January 15th. So that's all the information about him. Again, he's, he's dead. He died a year after the murder, but there are just a lot of um, like coincidences, I guess. 
how convenient he died a year later. <laughs> right. Um, and he did have the brain disease. So it's very possible that even though he didn't have any violent, um, like, history, the brain was leaving him, you know? Yeah. Okay. The next one. I only pulled out the ones that I thought were just either interesting or, like, worth actually looking into. So the next one's name is Joseph A. Dumas, who was a 29-year-old soldier who is a stationed. Hold on. Dumas was a 29-year-old soldier stationed at Fort Dix, uh, New Jersey, who confessed to Betty's murder a few weeks after it occurred. He claimed that he was out on a drinking bid with Betty a few nights before the body was found, but he had blocked, blacked out at some point and woke up in a, ta in a taxi outside of a hotel. And he, like, was very adamant saying, like, I killed her. Like, I know I did it because I was with her and now she's dead and I don't remember what happened. I must have killed her. But there were a lot of people who said, like, no, he was at the, um, like, the army base during that time. And so even though he was in cleared of any involvement, he still claims, um, like, well into the 50s, that he killed Betty. Hmm. And, yeah, but he was, he was cleared. Hmm. Oh, like I said, a lot of people wanted to be, like, guilty. Okay, yeah. I don't, I think just, like, for the fame. Hmm. Um, this is the one that, like, a lot of people really like. His name is George Hodel. Um... So, Dr. George Hill Hodel Jr. came into police scrutiny in 49 when his 14-year-old daughter Tamar, I think is how you say it, accused him of molesting her. And even though there were three people saying that they had seen this happen, um, he was acquitted in December 1949. Okay, but anyway, the trial led the LAPD to include Hodel, who at the time was a physician, um, and so police put Hodel under surveillance from February 18th to March 27th, 1950, to see if he could be implicated in any way. And in the surviving transcripts of the recordings, Hodel was heard making a highly incriminating statements, such as, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't even talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now that they may have it figured out, killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. But um, I will say that later on in the trans or before in the transcript, he's like, yeah, I know my phone is tapped. So I, it's like he was almost playing with them. But the secretary that he was talking about was named Ruth Spaulding, who police had previously suspected of being murdered by Hodel in 1945. Um, because he was present when she overdosed and he burnt some of his some of her papers before the police were called but the case was dropped um, due to lack of evidence and documents were later found though that indicated Spalding was about to publicly accuse Hodel of intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for laboratory testing medical treatments and prescriptions that were not needed um, and so Hodel's son is was a former LAPD homicide detective. His name is Steve Hodel, and he believes that Short may have been one of um, his father's patients. So that's where he thinks the tie is. And in 2003, Steve Hodel 
published a book, Black Dahlia Avenger, a, Gen a Genius for Murder, in which he claims his father, who died in 1999, had murdered Betty and was responsible for other resolved killing unresolved killings over two decades. Steve had also seen two pictures in her father's in his father's photo albums that he claims is Betty, but I've seen the pictures and I'll show them to you right now, Kaylee. I don't think there's any, they just don't look like her. Um, but you can tell me what you think. Okay, so this is the picture that he found and this is Elizabeth. They have two different noses. Right. Like her nose is very skinny. Now, they, I think this woman has been identified, but there's this other woman who, again, just doesn't, just doesn't look like her. I can't get them on the same page, but it's just a, a white woman with dark hair. Yeah, that doesn't look like her to me either. But her eyes are, like, they both have closed eyes, so, like, you can't really tell. Right. I don't know. I don't think. I don't think either of them are her, though. But he is, like, adamant that it was his father. Um, and since the beginning of his, since the beginning of his investigation, um, Steve has located and identified one of the photographs, but the other one still remains unidentified. Um, so after reviewing some of the information in Steve's book, the head deputy proclaimed that the case was solved, but others were like, you formed this uh, conclusion by treating uh, Steve's many disputed assertions as fact, and they were like, you can't, you can't do that. He has, there's nothing like actually tying him to the case. It's just his son being like, I think he did it, and I found these pictures, and they're sketchy. Um, but he, in 2009, Hodel also published a book um, called Most Evil, Adventure, Zodiac, and Further Serial Murders of George Hill Hodel, in which he claimed that his father was also the Zodiac Killer. Um, so, I don't know why. He just really wants his father to be a murderer. And I don't get it. I don't know. I guess, like, that's interesting when you get fame from it, but... It makes no sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and this is another example of someone wanting their father to be the killer. So, this is about George Knowlton, and he died in 1962. And he also lived in L.A. But in the early 1990s, his daughter, Janice, uh, has started going to therapy because she was suffering from depression. And she said that she had these recovered memories. And she said that she remembered... Um, she alleged that her father had been having an affair with Elizabeth Short and that she had been staying in a makeshift bedroom in their garage and that is where she suffered a miscarriage. And she details all this in her book called Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer. Um, so everyone's writing books. I was gonna say, how do all these people just get published about the same thing? And they actually dug up this man's backyard because she said like he made her help 
uh, carry the body outside and dig the hole. Uh, but they dug it up and there was nothing, nothing there. So, um, and that brings us to our last suspect that I decided to include, who was the man who dropped her off at the hotel, Robert M. Red Manley. Um, his is kind of sad. So he was the top suspect because he was the last person to see her alive. But after two polygraphs tests and a sworn alibi, he was set free. Um, he had been discharged from the army earlier because of mental disability. And due to all the accusations and like, I don't know if bullying isn't the right word, but like harassment of being like, you're the Black Dahlia murderer. He suffered um, many nervous breakdowns and he claimed to be hearing voices. And so he was committed to the state hospital by his wife in 1954. And he died in 86 due to an accidental fall. Mm. Yeah, that's all I have. There were, it's unsolved still. It's, I think it's like one of the, Oldest unsolved is something I read, but that doesn't make sense. There's in the pictures. Of it. I watched I, BuzzFeed Unsolved a while ago. Like it's been a few years of this murder, so like I knew about it. Um, I'm trying. I was trying to think the whole time what suspect that they talked about, and I feel like it was one of the doctors, but I don't know which. One. I can't remember. Hodel is a big one that a lot of people think. I feel like it was Hodel. Like that name when you said that I was like I think that's that was the one that they talked about. But the William Bailey is the one who, like, just a lot of coincidences at being a mile away from his recently divorced wife. Like, they got a divorce, like, four months before the murder. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then... It was the wife. And he, Ruth Bailey. The new suspect. We've cracked the case. <laughs> We've solved the Murder. Oh, he was having an affair. She was pissed. Yeah, yeah. And so when he divorced her. Cut off her her, arms. Cut off her legs. Cut off her. That whore. And then killed her publicly to shame her. Mm -hmm. Played her out in the street. Played her out in the street. Only took one nipple. She is. (laughs) (laughs) The Essler. Um, No, the only thing about Hodel that I do think is like, worthy is the fact that he is a skilled doctor now bailey was a surgeon but he only did like like mastectomies or like hysterectomies Mm -hmm. so i don't know if he could do a whole a whole slicing in two to a person and they said like she was so white like like the color of my door like type white Mm -hmm. but yeah that's all i got the black dahlia that was a good job. It was good. Enjoying it. Of course. Well, thank you for listening to the last episode of season one of Partners in Crime. But we're going to be having another season next semester, so make sure to tune in for it. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kaylee, and we will see you in the fall 2021.